Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. The West Seattle Bridge has been open for just over a month now, so has the normal commute returned? Chris, what do the numbers say? Well, the, the numbers suggest not quite yet. They're getting there. But, I mean, let's not forget, people living in West Seattle were jumping for joy September 18th when the two-and-a-half-year emergency closure ended. So were the people living in the neighborhoods that everybody was using as alternates. But just over a month in, the commute hasn't returned to pre-closure, which, of course, coincides perfectly with pre-pandemic levels since the bridge closed the same day that the government shut down and the state shut down over COVID. Seattle Department of Transportation's Ethan Bergerson says the traffic volume is about 66% of those pre-closure levels. It's been a pretty consistent. Uh, level for of about 60,000 vehicles a day that we've seen over the past few weeks. An average of 90,000 cars use the bridge every day before the closure. About another 20,000 people use buses to get across. It typically takes a little bit of time for traffic um, patterns to really reestablish themselves into a new normal. Believe it or not, there might still be people who are um, figuring out what works for them or still planning on returning to the hybrid at some point. And the X factor here, of course, is that the work-from-home phenomenon. Bergerson says they really don't know if the pre-closure volumes will fully return ever, considering the new work models and the habits many adopted during the closure. We're still looking to see how traffic patterns stabilize, and, you know, we've got other changes, too, because... The last time the high bridge was open was before the pandemic, and there's a lot more people who are home now. It's also a lot of people we've encouraged to try out uh, taking the bus or riding the bike, and some we're hoping that some people develop habits that they decide to stick with. One huge positive is that SDOT is seeing a month into this is that a huge reduction in vehicles using all those side streets and neighborhoods that became the primary detour routes, neighborhoods in Soto, Georgetown, South Park, elsewhere in the Duwamish Valley. Those have really quieted down. It's a lot of relief for a lot of neighborhoods. I think a good example of that is West Marginal Way. There were points uh, where we would see three times as many vehicles a day using West Marginal Way, sometimes even three and a half times as many vehicles a day using West Marginal Way, and that's decreased dramatically. So has use of the Lower Spokane Street Bridge, uh, because now you have alternates, you have different ways to get around, so we're starting to see things loosen up there. Now, I have noticed that the daily backups at I-5 have returned as you're heading east, but they're not as bad as they were pre-pandemic, because obviously we've got only... 66% of the, you know, what we were used to getting over there. But Bergerson says they are looking at a spot just east of the bridge on the Spokane Street viaduct where there have been some recent crashes uh, right near the merge where drivers enter the viaduct from 99. Merge points are definitely always a conflict point. Um, Rainy weather is also something that always leads to people having some harsh reminders, but as a Department of Transportation, it's our duty to take a good look at it and see what we can do. Bergerson wonders that if drivers at that particular point who have been using 99 to get to I-5 during the high bridge closure, that's, that stretch was open. They're just not used to people being on the other side of the res they merge in. They've forgotten that there are people coming up from behind them, and they need to be very careful. Uh, so, of course, those are things you have to work there. I'd like to know what your experiences have been on the West Seattle Bridge in the month or so since it's opened. Uh, you can always hit us up on the State Roofing text line, which is 888-973-5476. Tell us what you're experiencing and uh, what you like or don't like. Yeah. Uh, do they have any more improvements planned for that corridor? Because Oh, of- yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of things going on. Because, I mean, the mitigation projects that they started 
during the closure to kind of help the neighborhoods cope with the extra traffic, uh, you know, make things safer for pedestrians. What a lot of those are still ongoing. A lot of them they finished. A lot are still ongoing. It's stuff not on the bridge that you wouldn't notice. Uh, but other than that, oh, and by the way, he did say that they just had the first inspection of the bridge uh, yes. since, and and uh, I guess that's very important. All the numbers uh, seem to be going along. No, no surprises there. It seems like what they did uh, has worked, and 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 they're doing fine when it comes to that part about the strength and stability of the bridge. And these are real time sensors they have. Yeah. The oh yeah. Now, that right? the, so. when I got inside that that the, the box girder the second time and saw the whole sensor area that they set up all there, and you know the bells and whistles go directly to S dot you know, to, uh, to the traffic management center and to you know if there was anything that came out of line. And again, we're talking fractions of millimeters and fractions of whatnot if yeah. any, any of those cracks. And so the, everything looks good. Well, I've driven a couple of times. Yeah, seems, me too. Seems sturdy to me. Yeah, it does. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> uh, I know it can be a little dicey in the weather, you know, when the when now it's wet coming up and down. But boy, when it's a sunny day, I, you forgot just how oh, beautiful, beautiful that like view this. is looking towards the city. Cases of the common respiratory virus, RSV, continued to rise in young children here in western Washington. This is on track with the rest of the nation. And Colleen wanted to share some information sent to us from UW Medicine. That's right. And it's because I wish I had this information when my youngest daughter, June, had RSV. That was in early 2020. We had to hold her down in a hospital bed as she got her lungs sucked out. And I'm going to get to that in a moment. Uh, first, pediatric nurse Sparrow Heeland wants to share just how prevalent RSV is right now. Usually during this time of year for October previous to 2020, we maybe had zero to three cases testing positive. And right now in the community and particularly in our clinic, it is significantly more. And here's the thing. It can be treated at home. No, not every kid like mine have to be hospitalized. Nurse Sparrow his symptoms are like other viruses, fever, coughing, congestion. Often it's just a ton of secretions that are draining from their nose as well as cough. Um, they can also have a decrease in appetite um, that can lead to dehydration, which is also a concern. Um, and it can impact, impact their activity levels as well. But when those symptoms take a turn for the worse, you need to call a doctor. High fevers, lethargy, work of breathing, um, oxygen need, the inability to maintain their hydration, um, keeping up with their, uh, you know, meal times. Um, also, if their urine output is decreased, those are all concerns. That's the turning point, the struggle to breathe, which presents itself in the youngest of kids as flared nostrils. If you watch their chest and their diaphragm, they go concave. Breathing becomes rapid and short. And yes, your kid can become pale or blue. So back to June, she was just eight months old. It started like any other sickness, and she's in daycare, so we're used to her getting sick monthly. But uh, she just couldn't kick this one, and we noticed she had these short, sharp breaths. And we called her pediatrician. They instructed us to count her breaths per minute. And I don't see that being mentioned anywhere in the national news or locally about this counting of the breaths. Anything over 40 would put my child at eight months old in the danger zone. And we got there quickly. So off to Seattle Children's, we went. We were admitted right away. After some time, doctors determined they needed to clear her lungs. So you heard uh, the nurse talk about just the output of mucus and secretions in younger children when they can't cough because they're having a hard time breathing and getting oxygen in. They cannot bring up, they can't you know, make it a productive cough and get that mucus out of their lungs. And this was sort of the, the part where you know, I wanted to get this information out there because to do this, they had us 
help hold her down, arms and legs, and then they stuck a tube down her nose and into her lungs. And the look on her face, the sounds that she made, uh, it's hard to forget. I wish I could just remove it from my memory. It was horrifying. And what came out of her lungs, equally horrifying. She was choking on this phlegm in her lungs. Um, She was sent home with a steroid inhaler to help open her airways. Eventually, she recovered. But because she was one of the more severe RSV sufferers, she will now be at greater risk for breathing issues when another virus comes along, which is what made the pandemic so scary, right? Um, So I wanted to get that information out there and just let parents know that this is our experience I don't want to scare you, but you definitely should watch. And the flared nostrils was our first indication she was having trouble yeah. breathing. Well, it is scary. Yeah. They can't, they can't sedate her for the tube intubation? I guess they just, they maybe they didn't think it was going to be that much of a struggle. But for her, and I have to say, like, I a struggle think, for me. <laughs> I know. I think she had, like, a little PTSD after it, having sure. her parents hold her down and have that happen to her. Because ever since then, when we would go to change her diaper and lay her down on her back, she would start screaming and kicking, like... Yeah. I don't want this to happen. Last time I was on my back, right, you guys exactly. sucked my lungs out. So yeah. take RSV seriously. Um, don't want to scare you, but these are the real, real symptoms to look out for. You probably have to talk to her when she gets older, right? And explain this may be why you feel the way you do. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely watch it and see how it's going to present itself. It's time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Baird. The journey of one Penn State senior has come full circle. CBS's Nancy Chen has his story. Tucker Haas is on a full circle journey, and the path keeps leading him here to State College, Pennsylvania. What does Penn State mean to you? Penn State saved my life. At the age of two, Haas was diagnosed with an aggressive form of sarcoma. In total, I went through four different stints with cancer, twice inside my face and twice in my right lung. I had two thoracotomy surgeries, 77 radiation treatments, hundreds of chemotherapy treatments. But his family has never seen a medical bill. And that's because of a partnership between Four Diamonds, a childhood cancer research and support organization, and THON, a Penn State student-run philanthropic effort known most notably for its 46-hour dance marathon fundraiser. One mission, young and ambitious, well-equipped to crush the competition, knows fame and money. The money THON collects goes to children and their families impacted by cancer. As a nine-year-old, Haas even participated in the event in this viral moment. Put your hands in the air. This will be your 20th thon this year. Yeah. You've been going since you were really little. Yeah, it's just one of those things when you walk into thon, if you've never experienced it, uh, it's very breathtaking. Seeing 15-plus thousand students packed the Bryce Jordan Center on a snowy, freezing cold weekend in February, and you just see all these kids with the same passion, the same love for these children and families that are going through cancer. But the support goes far beyond one night. Through THON, a sorority and fraternity also adopted Haas as one of their own. What would they do for you? I mean, everything. I, they would come visit me at the hospital. They would drive two hours on a weekend and spend the entire weekend with me. They would send me stuff to the hospital, toys and presents. Looking back, it really made an impact on my life. Haas has been cancer-free for almost 16 years. And when it came time to apply for college, he says Penn State was a no-brainer. Doc, Doc. Now a senior, he's a leader in the very same fraternity that looked after him as a kid. Alpha Tau Omega, 
and he's giving back to kids just like him. That is CBS's Nancy Chen. Seven forty-eight, and now from the Gian Ursula show, it starts at nine. Here is G Scott. Good morning, bro. So, can you give us the definitive version of what happened on that uh, a plane involving Russell Wilson's calisthenics? I, I can't believe you guys don't have the sound. I mean, because is Russell, there sound of it? yes, there's actual sound of Russell okay, talking about it. But let me let on. me go ahead and give you the uh, from my version of it. Basically, there was an eight-hour flight from Denver, Colorado to London, where they are getting ready to play a football game against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Well, I don't know if you guys have ever traveled to London yes. before. They say it's an eight-hour, I guess it's it was a long trip. It's a long little trip. Well, according to what Russell said, Russell told reporters that, hey, yeah, you know, I just, you know, I, I watched film in the first couple hours. Then after that, I was just kind of working out and, you know, the guys were asleep uh, right there. And so I was in the middle of the aisles and I was just doing high knees and all of those things. And so he was working out. He's letting, you know, we here in Seattle are used to the old n- Team no sleep. You remember how Russell didn't yeah, sleep? Mr. Incredible, right? Mr. Incredible. Wait, or Mr. Universal. You remember when he Mr. came back from injury one time? He said he had the nano bubbles and all those things. He's had all of these miraculous things. So he does this workout on the plane. A regular plane? I would assume with all those football players. Okay. And so they know regular. Well, I mean, whatever the case might be. Yeah. But he. Not no no other person reported he told everybody that this is what he was doing on oh, the plane. Yes. So, so this was not witnessed by the other players. Ooh, ooh I found I mean, the sound. I'm the, oh, you found the sound? Want to hear it? Yeah, yeah. Okay. For me, I was on the plane for two hours. I was uh, uh, first two hours. Eight, was it eight hours flight here? That's the first two hours. I was watching the film, watching all the cutups and everything else. And then for the next four hours, I was doing treatment on the plane. I was walking up and down the aisles. Everybody was knocked out. I was doing high knees and working on, working on my legs and everything else. You know, make sure I'm ready to rock. Uh, so that was good. And then the last two hours of the last hour of that, I, I watched. I fell asleep for one hour, and then I watched the film the rest. So interesting. I saw, so <laughs> I, 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 I have to. I have to say this. Here's what stands out to me mm-hmm. in everything. I mean, there's so much cringe in that. But the one part that really stands out to me is that he could have told that story without involving anyone. The part where he says, yeah, I was doing high knee and I was working out and everyone was asleep. Stop right there. Oh, interesting. What, what, so what? you think the team took offense to that? Like, oh, so you want to say you're the only one putting in the work. You heard it Is for that yourself? how you read it? I read it as like, well, everybody's asleep, so I wasn't disturbing anybody. That's how I heard it. Was everybody asleep? Have you? Let me. Here's a question. Have you guys ever been on an airplane? Maybe you took a red eye and you were getting ready to go to the restroom. Yeah. Did you did you ever think that everyone on the plane is asleep? Have you ever seen Think about this for I a second, ladies and gentlemen. Plane, so. Have you ever in your life been on a plane? I don't care if it's one, two, three o'clock in the morning, four in the morning. Have you ever seen an entire plane sleep? No. Well, there should be a flight attendant awake at the very at least. At the very least, yeah. So do you th- <laughs> so, so do you think I mean, he actually It's almost like some Jim Jones stuff. Like if you were asleep. <laughs> Have any of his teammates spoken up about probably not. No. Okay. No. What an interesting dude. So you don't you don't see this as just uh, Russell uh, being humbly describing his work ethic. 
You see this as like bragging, or what do you see it as? I mean, that's what he does, and that's fine. And I don't. I think a little humble brag, a little brag. We all do it. That's fine. So weird when you, thing to brag. But about. when you when you give your brag, so if I come in and I come into the radio station and I'm like, oh, yeah, so Colleen, Dave, and those guys, yeah, they they didn't get started till five a.m. But I was here at 4.30, I see, I and see. I was here at 4.30, and I was actually waiting for Dave and Colleen to start their show. I see. Like, you can talk about and brag about what you're doing, mm-hmm. but why do you have to involve other people? Yeah. That, that's my only thing. And by the way, this is proof that you ever notice that since he has left the Seahawks organization— that now the entire world now are seeing like, wait, whoa, whoa, what is this? Mm-hmm. Right? It goes to show you that this is why I speak so highly of an amazing culture and organization. And I guarantee you he misses home. I bet. I bet he misses home. <laughs> right? Like this is where mama's home cooking is. This is where all you had all your rent was due at the end of the month. This you is where pay, all the wins are. You pay three hundred dollars a month. Remember renting a room for like three hundred dollars <laughs> a month? And that's it. Everything else is paid for. Yeah. Hmm. So you're saying he may want to come back. I, I don't think we'd take him. D- Dave Ross. Well, there's gotta be a backup you, spot somewhere. Would you want to come back? What? If I, you, if you I were, can't play football. But but if you could, if you were Russell and you were and you were him, mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to come back here? Well, sure. It's the whole prodigal son story. Oh, and one last thing. Yeah, I just want to just be on record to say this: mm-hmm. every single home game that he's played in mm-hmm. in Denver, mm-hmm. he's been booed. Ooh. Really? That's got to hurt. Uh, G. Scott with Ursula at nine o'clock. Thank you, G. <laughs> I actually, when you said there's sound of it, I actually thought you meant there's sound of him doing high knees, breathing heavily. Yeah. Is that (laughs) what you're looking for? Yeah, not him talking about his workout. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. So you may have heard that the tax brackets are changing. I thought we'd call in our tax whisperer. Kenneth Williams of Clifton Larson Allen to explain this to us. So uh, the income tax is indexed. So with inflation at this level, will this indeed have a noticeable effect on the taxes uh, people will pay next year? Yeah, I think some people will see some differences, Dave. Uh, How substantial it is, how noticeable it is will depend on their individual circumstances. But this is one of the larger increases that we've seen in a long time in the the index tax rates. Now, is there a a comprehensible way you can explain how the brackets are changing and and exactly which income levels are going to see the most effect here? Yeah, sure. So, the changes in the index affect both the tax rates and the standard deduction. So people get kind of a double benefit here from this inflation adjustment. As your listeners know, we pay tax rates based on our income and the higher our income level, the higher the tax rate on each additional dollar of income that we have. So when you get into a higher bracket, you don't pay that rate on all of your income, but any additional income gets taxed at that higher rate. Congress, in their wisdom back in 1981, when we started uh, experiencing inflation significantly, decided, well, we better index these so that people don't feel like they're falling behind just because of inflation, that all of a sudden more of their income is being taxed on their real 
adjusted income after infl- adjusting for inflation. So they created this index, and and so each of those brackets creeps up a little bit each year, in terms of more of your income gets taxed at a lower rate before you dip into that higher tax rate. And this is a, this year the increases were quite a bit higher than than the adjustments we've seen in the past. And the reason for that was because since it's a progressive taxation scheme, as inflation pushes up not just your expenses, but your income, it it would push you into a higher percentage bracket. And that was considered to be uh, unfair. So the indexing just what basically widens the bracket. So it takes a bigger income jump to push you into that higher bracket. That's right. Yeah. For individuals, say you are, are someone who didn't get any salary increase in a particular year, and yet the cost of living has increased by a certain amount, you're falling behind because it costs more to live. And so Congress tried to adjust the rates to say, well, let's increase the bracket uh, at which the higher rate kicks in so that your your real income is adjusted for yeah. the, the, the cost of inflation. And so it's not a huge difference. Uh, I, I don't think anyone's going to be real excited to say, wow, my, my paycheck just doubled because of these these uh, index changes. But and it also depends on where you fall in the brackets. Yeah. Uh, so in other words, don't, don't expect to be completely compensated for your loss of purchasing power because of these bracket changes. No, no. I mean, I ran through some numbers. And, and for example, uh, a married couple earning $100,000 a year, they're going to say between these, if they use the standard deduction, they're going to get about uh, $242 more a year in refund. Okay, so, um, you know, a dollar a day for each workday. <laughs> well, you know, it's something. Now, if you're in higher, in different brackets, it can impact you more significantly. And what it also will do is the change in the standard deduction, that that also increased from uh, 25900 to 27700 So that's an $1,800 increase. People who in the past had to itemize, they may be able to just take the standard deduction now, and that's a free pass. If you don't have to itemize, you get that much more in deduction. That's good. That yeah. coupled with the, with the benefit in the, in the tax bracket changes, you know, it can add up. Yeah, it saves a couple of hours anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> now, can you give me an update? Uh, I want to ask you on a, on a different matter, an update on the IRS staffing that President Biden announced as part of the uh, the whole uh, budget compromise. Uh, I still hear pushback from listeners on that. They they don't want it to happen. Um, they keep talking about, I forget, what was the figure, 67,000 new IRS employees or something like that? Yeah, 87,000. 87,000. Okay, so 20,000 more than I thought. So is that going ahead? Yeah, yeah, that's their plan. Now, how how quickly it happens and how quickly they rolled out and get trained and are in the field and what uh, responsibilities they're going to be have and who they're going to be auditing or, you know, there are a lot of different uh, functions in the uh, Internal Revenue Service. I'm sure that we will see some increase in live people contacting us, following up on things, but it'll also take a while to get them hired, get them trained. I don't think that we're going to see anything. I think we can still enjoy our Christmas. Yeah, okay. Have you seen any noticeable change in the ability of the IRS to answer the phone? Because I know the last time we talked about this, uh, even tax accountants with their special access numbers couldn't get anybody. Yeah, 
We haven't witnessed much movement there on that. Uh, I know that they're they're trying. Uh, we just finished a big deadline this earlier this week on all the individual returns that are on extension. So they're busy processing those, and and that always yields a higher call volume with people trying to follow up on where's my refund and so forth. And so we see some ebb and flow in that, but it's still pretty difficult to get through. In fact, I'd say from six months ago, it's probably more difficult for us to get through than it was uh, at that time. Really? And finally, yeah. uh, with all these losses on Wall Street, I know that it's your job as a tax accountant to make sure that your clients pay the least tax that they legally owe. Uh, are there opportunities to you know, write off some stuff this year? Well, certainly one of the tax strategies that we always look at as we approach the end of the year is to the extent that uh, individuals have capital gains from other sources is to harvest some of those losses to offset those gains. Unfortunately, when it comes to capital losses like you would get from the sale of a stock, you're only able to use those losses generally to offset other capital gains Plus, you get $3,000 of net loss a year, and then the balance carries forward that can offset uh, gains in future years. But those stock losses can only offset up to $3,000 of other types of income, like your wages or dividends or interest. So you have to kind of say, well, okay, I can get some benefit, but does it make sense to sell this stock if I'm not going to get an immediate benefit from it? Should I just leave it in the market? That's always the decision, right? Ken Williams from Clifton Larson Allen. Ken, thanks very much. Thank you, Dick. You can ring my bell. Ring the bell. Eight forty-eight Seattle's morning news. Nobody expects a visit to a cemetery to be delicious, except for Rachel Bell. What do you want on your tombstone? and sausage. In a case of life imitating art, if you can call a 1992 Tombstone Pizza commercial art, some dearly departed have chosen to immortalize the dish their family loves best with a recipe engraved on their gravestone. I came across the first gravestone recipe, which was the grave of Naomi Miller Dawson in Brooklyn, New York. That's Rosie Grant, known on Instagram and TikTok as Ghostly Archive. Earlier this year, Rosie started cooking the recipes engraved on gravestones and sharing them on social media. It was like the ingredients to the spritz cookie that was a personal recipe for her. Only the ingredients were engraved. No instructions. I definitely made a lot of mistakes. (laughs) I'd never heard of a spritz cookie before. And even when the instructions are listed, like in the case of a fudge recipe, it can still be a challenge. At one point on the gravestone, it says cook to the softball stage. I did not know what that meant. I thought that meant like cook it to the consistency of a softball. So I'm like, I guess they make it really tough. Like, I don't know what that means. So far, Rosie has tracked down 11 gravestone recipes, mostly in the U.S., but there are two in Israel and one that is cemetery adjacent. There's this woman buried in Texas and her grave says she made the best meatloaf. The cemetery actually sent her meatloaf recipe. The cemetery like keeps that recipe on hand in their archives, which is so cool. She says all but one of the recipes is a dessert and all were elderly women who passed away over the last 30 years. 
The project started when Rosie was a library science student at the University of Maryland. We had to do an internship. So I ended up interning at a cemetery in their like digital archives area. That's when she ran across the Spritz cookie recipe. Rosie has since visited a few of the graves and she always makes the dish and brings it along. Her goal is to visit all 11. I just got plane tickets to go to Seattle. There's one that's like an hour south of Seattle that I'm hoping to visit around Thanksgiving time. What's that recipe? Oh my gosh, it's so good. It's a glazed blueberry pie on a grave of a woman named Margaret Davis. It's really good. And so I'm excited to go visit that one. Rosie has gotten a few messages from folks who think the project is inappropriate, but she's been contacted by some of the families who are thrilled that their relative is being remembered for the dish they were best known for. It's a really like lovely way to think about celebration rather than just like this really sad, horrible thing that'll happen someday. What recipe would you put on yours? Oh my gosh, this is my family, one of our favorite conversations right now. And I'm torn between either like my favorite mac and cheese recipe or I love clam pasta. So hopefully I have a little bit of time to decide between the two of those. Find a link to Rosie's Instagram and TikTok at mynorthwest.com slash Rachel Bell. Oh, and at the end of each video, she never fails to point out that the recipe is to die for. So, Dave, if you were to put a recipe on your headstone, what would it be? Chocolate, double chocolate chips, uh, cookies with walnuts. Ooh, is that a special recipe that you make? No, I just like walnuts and chocolate chip cookies. The thing is, Rachel, when 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 you bake enough cookies, the recipes are pretty close, except for whatever stuff you throw into the dough. I beg to differ. I mean, anyone who's baked cookies knows that sometimes they spread out and they get flat. Sometimes they're cakey. Sometimes they're chewy. I feel like there are these little differences, like, you know, how warm the butter is, how soft this is. Like, those things make a difference. Right. Those are called mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) It's because you're not following the directions. So, do I really need to do this? Does the butter really need to be cold? I mean, for the the cookies to set up, yes, the butter, it's held together by the the butter and and sometimes the uh, the egg and so it's got to be cooked properly. But I'll eat anything that's got chocolate chips and walnuts <laughs> okay. in it. So it does. I mean, if cookie dough has become a thing, right? Some people don't don't even bother to cook the thing anymore. The cookie dough itself is what they eat. That's my choice too. I like both. I just like that it's kind of this gift. For the living, you know, it's like every time somebody misses their grandma, they could make that recipe and have this kind of connection. And it's the ultimate last meal. I mean, that's why I was so attracted (laughs) to this. I said, this reminds me of a podcast that I know called Your Last Meal, because I mean, it kind of is. I don't know if they ate it, but it's their eternal meal. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. It's it's a way of using a lot of unused a lot of unused space on gravestones right there's yeah. the, the the name the dates and there's all that real estate that nobody does you know ads would be one idea but <laughs> not, i wouldn't be surprised with the way that you know people everyone's doing ads on social yeah. media yeah but a little information you know or you know yeah. how, or if it's not a recipe it's like how to fold a dress shirt properly. How to it, fold a fitted sheet. That would to, be the best. How to fold a fitted sheet. Gravestone yes. ever. Yeah, because like I said, you know, when people die, what's left is obviously for the living. And so if your family's going to go visit your gravestone, it would be nice to go and have this thing that makes you chuckle a little or yeah. has some personality. Dan Restione, who worked here for a very long time, some people might remember his name. He told me that he wants this really gaudy, gothic, huge gravestone that he wants people to weep at. And he wants gargoyles all over it. 
wants it to be spooky. Well, he wants to terrify people. He wants to terrify people, but he wants them to sob and miss him. And so, you know, entertain people. Put some fun on your gravestone. That's true. It should be more of an experience than simply an epitaph. Exactly. Rachel Bell. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.